In the course of human history, including our own, it often feels that things just rock along as they've always been, that the darkness prevails, that uh, nothing's ever going to change. But it only makes sense that if the infinite God steps on the stage, if the infinite God breaks into the world, that everything changes. It's a great disruption. Such was the case in the days of Jesus' ministry. And as we've traveled through John, we found that the more Jesus ministers, the more stirred up things become. It was a turbulent time. Great excitement and great danger and great significance. And Jesus was at the center of it all. Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead sent shockwaves through the whole Jewish community in and near Jerusalem, and no one was denying that it happened. There are too many eyewitnesses. Many considered the resurrection of Lazarus good reason to trust in Jesus as the promised Messiah. So his enemies were alarmed. They had decided over a year earlier to kill him, but this event galvanized them into making sure it happened sooner than later. It was now springtime, nearing the Passover season, when the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world would be slain. Darkness and light are in deadly conflict, and the salvation of the world is at stake. The conspiracy to kill Jesus grows strong, and its success would end up fulfilling the foreordained plan of God to redeem the lost. History continues the conflict to this day. Darkness may seem to be gaining an upper hand, but God is ever turning the darkness into a means of advancing the light. The enemies of Christ may plot, but the plan of God will prevail. And that's what we find in our text this morning in John 11, 45 to 47. You'll see as we read why I've called it the plot and the plan. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people nor not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to a region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, where he stayed with the disciples. 
Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. The plot and the plan. In verses 45 to 48, we see Jesus viewed as either life giver or threat. In verses 49 to 53, we see the conspiracy, but we also see prophecy. And then in verse 54 through verse 57, we see that Jesus is both hidden away and close by. This series of paradoxes, this intertwining of the plots of man and the plan of God to bring about the redemption of the world. First, consider with me first Jesus as life giver or threat, a life giver to be trusted or a threat to be neutralized. Look again at verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he, that is Jesus, did, believed in him. They transferred their trust into him. And some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Remember, sign is one of the terms for miracles. It's the uh, miracles with a message. It's God is telling us something by this miraculous work. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Many Jews believed in Jesus because they had seen what Jesus did when he raised Lazarus from the dead. I mean, when you're talking about that kind of authority where with words the dead is brought to life, you're talking about amazing authority and power. And Lazarus continued to live among them as a living testimony to the resurrection power of Christ. The community, everybody in the community knew that he had died and that he had been dead. And now here he is walking around. I mean, you can imagine what kind of um, turbulence, what kind of stir there would be if we announced a funeral for one of our longtime members and and at the end of the funeral, we go to the graveside, and actually, he's there for a little while. The family's going to put families on the grave, and the grave bursts open, and out walks the person, and the next week, they're at Sunday school. I mean, it's just like, it's not like you can keep that in a box. It's not like you can keep that hidden. And so, it had tremendous effect. And while many believed, and by believe, not just believed that it happened, everybody believed that it happened, but many believed in the significance of what, it ha- what happened, that they needed a trust in Jesus as Messiah, others of the group went and told the Pharisees what Jesus had done. They had seen the miracle too, but they saw it as a problem that the Pharisees would want to know about, and they were right. The chief priests and the Pharisees convened the council of the Sanhedrin, and many of the Pharisees were scribes. Remember, Pharisee means separatists. They were trying to keep separate from the world. They were trying to go by the Bible. The Pharisees were scribes who made their living copying the Scriptures and teaching what was there. They were the current guardians of the Word of God. They believed in inerrancy, 
They believed in miracles and in angels, and also they believed in resurrection. So the resurrection of Lazarus was well within the framework of their theology. The chief priests were largely Sadducees, theological liberals who denied the existence of angels and denied even the possibility of a resurrection. So Lazarus was a living contradiction to their dogma of naturalism and unbelief. Jesus pinpointed their problem. Actually, later in this same Passion Week, they, they knew neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Nonetheless, as the chief priests, they ran the temple precincts, and as such were the guardians of the worship of God. So these two groups, the guardians of the Word of God and the guardians of the worship of God, were normally at odds with each other theologically, but they found common cause in trying to kill Jesus. Jesus had been a problem for a long time. His raising the dead made matters worse. He was doing many signs, and they worried that in time everyone would believe in Him. And the greater the numbers of people following Jesus, the more their power and prestige as leaders of the Jews would be threatened. Jesus consistently exposed their hypocrisy and their unbelief and demonstrated Himself to be more worthy of trust than they were. But what they feared even more was that an increase in Jesus' followers would catch the attention of Rome. If Rome perceived Jesus to be stirring up a Jewish rebellion, Rome would take action, decisive action, that would threaten the entire Jewish nation. And so, although they, they hated the Roman occupiers, they enjoyed the positions of power and wealth by staying in the good graces of Rome, and it was important to preserve that. Ironically, roughly 40 years after they murdered Jesus, Rome would do the very thing these Jewish leaders feared. Under the emperor Vespasian, the Roman general Titus would besiege Jerusalem in the Passover season of A.D. 70. They would allow pilgrims coming in for the festival to go into Jerusalem, but they wouldn't let them leave. And that way, they basically captured all the Jewish people that were devout, um, like flies in a bottle. They, they had them bottled up there in Jerusalem. That was in the spring. By August, Rome broke through the city defenses, and massacred many of the inhabitants, burned down the temple, tearing it apart stone by stone to get at the gold that had melted down between the stones. Jesus himself had prophesied these very events that would follow Jerusalem's rejection of him as a promised Messiah. So despite all the scriptural words and miraculous works that pointed to Jesus as the promised Messiah, these men rejected him, not for lack of evidence, but they rejected him to preserve what they held dear, to preserve what would in fact be destroyed only a few decades later. It is ever that way. The idols that keep your heart from yielding to Jesus will one day be stripped from you. You can't keep one of them. You will lose them all. They will not save you from God's judgment. So you're going to trade your eternity for what you'll have only for a few moments of time. They were short-sighted in what they pursued. They traded in what was eternal for what was temporary, and people still to this day choose that foolish 
choice. In fact, you and I, if we're not careful, will make the same kind of dumb decision to, to throw away what's truly valuable forever because of some idol of heart that we can keep only for a time. Roman armies may not be looming at the city gates, but we are all mortal, and we do not know what the next day will bring or when our life on earth will be done. Jesus has furnished more than ample proof of His being the promised Savior King, the Messiah, the Son of God. The problem is not with the proof. The reward He offers lasts forever, but the time to yield to Him and trust in Him is now, before it's too late. Whatever treasures you desire instead of Him will be gone like the wind in only a few short years at best, and you will have eternity to regret it. So let me ask you this morning, what do you value more than trusting in Jesus? See, these men, their problem wasn't intellectual. The problem wasn't that there wasn't enough proof. The problem wasn't that the words that Jesus said weren't good or that the works that he did weren't powerful. That wasn't the problem. The problem was they knew if they yielded to him, they weren't in charge anymore. So you and I can imagine we're in charge. But in time, it will be abundantly clear that we weren't. And everything we valued more than Jesus will lose. So do you view Jesus as the eternal life giver? Or do you view him as a threat to what you value more? And if you do see Jesus as the giver of life, how does your day-to-day -day life pattern display that conviction? You know, it's, it's really interesting in a, in a religious community, a church family, um, a number of us participate in the Christian school, a lot of us go to Christian schools, you're, you're in an environment where Christian talk is common. Everybody knows about Jesus, everybody can quote Bible verses, but that doesn't necessarily tell you that you value Jesus or that you're trusting in him. That doesn't mean that there aren't idols of heart or, and idols of lifestyle that are keeping you from actually being close to Jesus. So if you actually do believe in Jesus, you actually are trusting him as your savior, how is that showing up in your day-to-day -day pattern? Or are you trusting in Jesus just for eternity? and not for now. The reality is that you, you need the connection now and need to be living for him now. So, Jesus, life giver or threat. Second, we see the interplay of conspiracy and prophecy, the conspiracy to murder Jesus and a prophecy regarding the substitutionary atonement of Christ. In verse 49, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. 
Now, although Caiaphas served as the chief guardian of temple worship, the position of high priest was actually one of great political power, and it was dependent upon the favor of Rome. The Roman prefect Valerius Gratus had appointed him high priest in A.D. 18, so it would have been about 12 years earlier. And Caiaphas served in that role till he was deposed in A.D. 36, about six years after this. He was the son-in-law of Annas, who had served as high priest from A.D. 6 until A.D. 15, and Annas, his father-in-law, still retained a great amount of power. In fact, you'll see reference to him uh, in the trial of Jesus. Now, to his mind, it was better for Jesus to die than for the whole nation to perish at the hands of Rome. He had no idea that his statement of political strategy was, in fact, a divine prophecy. Jesus would die to save not just Jewish believers, but also to gather into one all the children of God, Jew and Gentile. And this becomes a theme of the New Testament. Paul writes about it when he writes to Gentile believers in the great city of Ephesus who had come to put faith in a Jewish Messiah. He says in Ephesians 2, verse 12, remember that you are at that time separated from Christ, separated from the Messiah, alienated from the commonwealth, the body politic of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. His death was going to be necessary to gathering them in. For he himself is our peace. He's made peace between us and God, and he's made peace between us and others, who has made us both, Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace." So he's bringing together what was just a Jewish religion, now is including the Gentiles wholesale. There are a few Gentiles who had uh, become proselytes to this point, but there would be a great ingathering of Gentiles to be one body, the children of God, that they might reconcile us both to God in one body. How did he do it? Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus removed the barrier between us and God and between us and other people. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, that's the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, that's the Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens or foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, those that belong to God and the members of the household of God. Caiaphas had no earthly idea that this was going to happen. He had no earthly concept that somehow executing Jesus would help accomplish this. But that's exactly what was going to happen according to the plan of God. And God spoke through this evil man what would actually come to pass. So Caiaphas and those conspiring with him to murder Jesus 
They were doing this to neutralize what they perceived as a threat to themselves and the nation. What Caiaphas and his co-conspirators did not realize is that in pursuing their own goals, they were in fact carrying out the plan of God established before the foundation of the world for Jesus to be crucified for the salvation of God's children. Now that is awesome. When, when you look at the, the machinations of powerful, evil men and all that they had at their disposal, even bringing death itself, and to see that God's going to turn that not toward death, but toward salvation. And this is why Peter would preach on the day of Pentecost, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This is only 50 days after the crucifixion. So he's actually looking in the eyeballs of men that were responsible. That's gutsy preaching. He was full of the Spirit. Later in Acts 4, when they're hauled in and told not to preach in Jesus' name anymore, and, um, and then they're finally released with a threat. Of course, they tell them we have to obey God rather than men. They come back to the church and report what was happening and we're told in verse 24 of Acts 4, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. You know, when you look around and you see the stars and the planets and the sun and the moon, you see the seasons uh, going in course as they always have. You see uh, the days and the weeks. All these things are set up by God, by His Word, right at the beginning of time. Every day there's testimony to the power of the Word of God and the reliability of God Himself. And that God is in charge of everything, that He upholds everything by the Word of His power. Every single day testifies to it. And so they refer to that. And then they go further. They talk about the revelation of Scripture. That would be general revelations, the revelation of Scripture, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is speaking through David, why do the Gentiles rage, the nations rage, and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed, against His Messiah, against His Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is the confidence of the early church, that the sovereign God could take the plots of God's enemies and bring about the plan of God. Whatever the plots of human beings may be, the redemptive plan of God prevails to the degree that God's plan can and does make use of even man's sinful plots. If you think about it, there really could be no good news of salvation if God cannot work this way. The sinful behavior of man cannot thwart the redemptive power of God, else no sinner by birth and by choice could ever be saved. It has to be that God's plan is more powerful than man's plots. It has to be that God's gracious redemption is more powerful than man's sinful spirit and choices. It is right to grieve over the sins of humanity. 
whether they be sins of others or sins of our own. And it's understandable that we would be wary or angry or alarmed about the evil plots of those in places of power. But because of the redemption plan of God in Christ Jesus, we are never ultimately at the mercy of political plots and sinful agendas. We may even suffer as martyrs for the gospel, but nobody can stop God's rescue of us. I mean, think about it. The God who raises the dead can't be stopped. And you can kill a Christian, but you can't keep him dead. And you only send him home. God uses even sinful plots to execute his plan. And here, he actually speaks prophetic truth through the mouth of a chief enemy of Jesus. History is recorded by the Bible and beyond demonstrates that God often brings His faithful servants to serve in the arena of political and military, religious, cultural leadership. It's a difficult calling. But whether we serve in such a field or not, our confidence is always in the redemptive plan of God to prevail over the strategies, good or bad, of mere human beings. And for that reason, we do not fret as those who have no hope. Our future and our happiness are not dependent on whatever humans wield power at the moment, and it will be only a moment, but in the eternal God who not only turns all things to the good of those who love Him, but even uses the mouths and bodies of evil people to accomplish His perfect plan. Imagine the impact on your own spirit. Imagine the peace and comfort you can experience in the midst of a turbulent world if you're actually thinking this way. I would encourage you not to take part in the fretful screams of those on social media, social media is great. But if you're going to be there, be a voice for one who believes in this kind of God and stop displaying your fearful fretfulness that is not of faith. Let the world see believers who can look straight into the storm, the storm even of persecution, the storm of evil plots of men, and yet maintain a confidence in the sovereign power of God to turn even the worst of plots into His perfect plan of rescue. Look, we have to believe this. There's too many problems we encounter. We, we have to believe that God is greater than any plot, that God is greater than any disease, that God is greater than any difficult circumstance, that, that God is greater than all of it, and He can turn it for good and that he actually makes good come from it. God's amazing. In fact, this is, you know, as you look at the Scriptures and you, and you look at your own life and how God works, it, it seems to be his favorite MO. He just loves to take what you think is impossible and turn it into just this amazing outcome you never even dreamed of. 
And, and this is only the first sampling of it compared to when our salvation is complete. Like we get a little small taste of that right now. But eventually, no, eventually nobody's going to be fretting in heaven when it's all said and done. You notice when I said when it's all said and done, because there are, remember the martyrs of tribulation period, they're saying, Lord, how long till you bring vengeance? So heaven's well aware of the frustrations of the plan not being finished yet. But one day the plan will be done. New heaven, new earth, everything's set right, and nobody's going to be fretting. No graveyards, no fretting, no feeling like you got gypped, no shame. It's going to be all set right. Your God is that good, and your God is that powerful. So what plots of powerful men and women cause you anxiety? Why don't you just name them? Why don't you, you know, jot them down? Like, make yourself realize what's causing the agitation in your heart, and just name it, okay? Where do you see God at work using even the evil efforts of human beings. Now, you can't see all of it because these things will unfold with time, but, but you've seen some things. Why don't you jot those down too? If you know God can do that, then he can do that with whatever's causing anxiety now. And what are ways that you can share the gospel with fretful people by pointing them to God's using the conspiracy to murder Jesus to accomplish his plan for our salvation. You know, one of the great arguments that the atheist or agnostic will use is how could there be a good, all-powerful God when there's so much evil and suffering in the world? Versus ignoring how could there be so much good in the world and there not be such a God, but we'll bypass that. What about all the, the evil? What about all the trouble? How could there be a good, all-powerful God? Well, you're assuming that God's not doing anything and he's already proved that he is. And, and ultimately, you go to the cross and you find the worst miscarriage of justice possible because here you have a completely innocent man, the only one that ever walked the planet, who is executed as a criminal. How could that possibly be good? I mean, it was evil. It was unmitigated evil. Christ himself said, this is the power of darkness. And yet God used that very plot to bring about atonement for our sins. And then Christ rose from the dead. I mean, you can't have a resurrection if there's not a death. They were part of it. They were part of it. So it's really important that we're just not fretting so much about the conspiracies of men. And, you know, sometimes we mock the conspiracies. You know, there is a conspiracy. Satan hates God. And he's got his demon hordes, and he infects the minds of many. And there's been this hatred of God. This, the world has been in subtle opposition to God uh, throughout the centuries. It's nothing new that there would be conspire. All conspire means is that people are getting together to, to do something. So, yes, there are conspiracies. Freaking out over the conspiracies, though, is not the way people of faith should respond. Because God's well aware of everything done in secret. God is well aware. And God holds in his hands the very life breath of every supposed powerful person there is. He can take him out at any time. 
And he does, just to prove it every now and then. Well, finally, in verses 54 to 57, we see this paradox that Christ is hidden away but close by. He's hidden from his enemies, but he's near to his disciples. Verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Best I could find, nobody knows where this was. So, he was definitely hidden away. We don't even know where it was. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, because remember, he had been teaching there publicly not long before, uh, in the winter and also in the fall. They were looking for Jesus, saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? that he will not come to the feast at all? Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Now, Jesus was not in the meeting of the council, but he knew of their decision. He's already demonstrated in his ministry that he can read their very hearts, and as God, he knows all things. But even if during his earthly humiliation, he limited himself from full use of his divine attributes, there were secret disciples of his among the Jewish leaders, such as Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. It's possible that they got word to him. We don't know. But Jesus knows about it. And John has repeatedly told us that, that Jesus avoiding arrests and execution early on because his hour had not come. It was now much closer, but still not the right time just yet. His atonement for the sins of the world would come at precisely the time God had planned and not a day early or a day late. So Jesus moved out of the immediate vicinity into the, until the week of Passover arrived. The next chapter records His coming back to Bethany, just two miles out of Jerusalem, where He had raised Lazarus from the dead. Meanwhile, people are coming from different regions into the Jerusalem area, going through the purification ceremonies. So religion goes on as usual while the religious leaders plot murder. They want to be pure, but they're okay with murder. For now, his enemies are looking for him, but he's not to be found. He's hidden away, but not from everyone. The text says that he was staying with the disciples. I found the contrast striking, it, and it continues to this day. Those who have grown to hate Jesus often cannot find him. It is actually a common judgment of God to bring on those who reject him. He is hidden from those who don't want him. Do not think if you push Jesus away, you will always have the option to call him back. You can miss your day of opportunity because you're not in control. He is. Those who love and trust Jesus as his followers, however, find him to be close by. They enjoy fellowship with him, communion. His invitation has ever been a call to those who are weary and heavy laden to come to him and find rest for their souls, to draw near, to come close. It's kind of like getting a little taste of Eden again, where God and man are together, and Jesus was God with us. 
John writes in 1 John, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He's speaking about Jesus. Here he is at the end of the first century. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. You may have a common experience. You may share in the same experience. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Jerusalem can't stop talking about him. Some are looking for Jesus to arrest him. Others speculate whether or not he will show up. But neither the enemies of Jesus nor the mere curiosity seekers can find him. He is hidden away. At the same time, he is actually close by. He's staying with his disciples. He will end up with disciples in Bethany next door to Jerusalem. But his enemies will not be able to arrest him until it is exactly the day and hour God planned for it to happen. So Jesus has powerful enemies, but they could not get to him until God brought it to pass. What does that tell you about God and the course of history and his plan of redemption? And in what ways are you enjoying close fellowship with God because of your relationship with Jesus through the testimony of his apostles and the work of the Holy Spirit? He can be close by if you want him. If you don't want him, you'll find that he is hidden away. We read the headlines and we hear the podcasts about what's going on in the world. But behind all the politics economics, and social movements, God works his plan for the good of his people. All the plots of human beings cannot thwart the perfect plan of God. God is still at work, just as he was in the final days of Jesus on earth. Jesus will be either your life giver or a threat to your idols. You can be part of the conspiracy to do away with him, or you can enjoy the fulfillment of the prophecy as his blood shed purges your sin and gives you life. You will find that he is hidden away if you don't want him, but close by if you do. The plot and the plan. Let's pray. Dear God, An awful lot about life is confusing. It's so confusing. We're, we're not sure what's going on. We don't even know how to feel about certain things, and our feelings are fickle as the wind. And God, we get discouraged with, with the bad things and the hard things and the dark things, and it seems that so often evil is in power and righteousness has fallen in the streets. And and God, we're, we're frustrated with that. And even in our own lives, we, we feel like we're not making the progress that we ought to make. God, help us 
to turn our eyes and our hearts to you as the one who takes even the worst of plots, the greatest evil, and turns it for good and fulfills your plan. Lord, we thank you for the many here who have trusted in you that, that are actually part of your eternal plan. We are, we're part of that redemption. You had us in mind by name. Our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and, and you will not lose one single person that God the Father has given to God the Son. And so, Lord, we rejoice that we're, we're part of this grand plan, this epic saga of redemption that you're working in the earth. And Lord, help us in, not get lost in the weeds. Help us not drown in the troubles. Help us to realize that, that we're part of this much bigger thing going on that you have complete control over. And Lord, help us rest in that. Help us know that our labor's not in vain. Help us know that, that even if, as we take up our cross and follow Jesus, that we die for his name, that even that is not the end. It's only really the beginning, and there is the best yet to come. Lord, keep us faithful. Keep us trusting you. Keep us strong in your word and in your spirit for the glory of Jesus. And may this Christmas season, we shine brightly the light and the beauty of the good news of Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.